welcome to the Nymon Be Praise. I'm Jack. And I'm Joe. And this week, actually, before we get into the topic, I think perhaps uh, I should open with our week. We should open with our weekly um, Nymon quote. <laughs> I still can't believe we're actually doing that. That's an actual thing we're now mm-hmm. doing, episode per episode. Hey, maybe we'll get everybody around the world doing it. Someone is going to listen, I mean, hypothetically, someone is going to listen to this entire podcast one day and they're going to get the entire script to Horns of Nine in a completely incorrect order. Oh, fuck, it's like a Stephen Moffat story arc, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's what they call non-linear. Um, and I'm going to open with, uh, uh, from, I think, part three is the Doctor going to K-9. It's like, did I say... Cricket ball. <laughs> and I am going to open with a quote from episode two, which is Soldied, of course. I love Soldied. Saying, mm. digging a black hole on my doorstep and trying to make See, Tom Baker laugh. See, when you told me that you, that was the quote you were going to say, I couldn't actually remember it. Oh, but I just, I was like, I assume it's Soldy. It sounds like something he would say. There's literally a scene where Tom Baker uh, and Graham Crowden are both trying extremely hard to make each other laugh and almost succeeding. And knowing them, they were both probably drunk during this story. I'm sure. Uh, oh, I need to but- I need to put in a little caveat here. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Graham Crowden was still with us, and I've actually since learned that he is not. So my apologies for that, for getting yeah. anybody's hopes up. Yeah, yeah. I, a great actor. Fantastic. And, and, uh, Do you ever see uh, Waiting for God? I beg your pardon? Do you ever see Waiting for God that he was in? I haven't seen Waiting for God, but it's one of those shows where I've, heard, I've literally only seen him in The Horns of Nymon, which is a performance that transcends time. It like. <laughs> It belongs in its oh. own separate acting dimension. Hans Nyman is your entire exposure to Graham Crowden. It is, so it is with <laughs> huge satisfaction that I hear he's actually he was actually quite an acclaimed thespian in his own right, like a pretty prestigious like television and theatre actor. And then he just turns up at the nineteen seventy nine and just like it was I, Sean <laughs> Anyway, why are we here today? Before we go on for another hour about the Horns of Nymon. Yeah, well, you know, I had a segue planned. You slightly steamrolled me, I'm but so sorry. the horn No, no, we can move past this. We have no choice. We have people listening now. Uh-huh. Um, but um, we uh, the Horns of Nymon is of course uh, uh, a favorite of ours, and specifically it is what we would call a guilty pleasure. And that we have decided is the theme this week, guilty pleasure, guilty pleasure story. So at the end of uh, last week's podcast, we both dropped a line of dialogue <laughs> hinting what our choices were. Mm. So, Joe, what have you picked? Um, I have picked the 1987 classic that is Time and the Rani. <laughs> Which oh might come as... And who are you? <laughs> the Rani! 
<laughs> okay, I can't watch this story without having fun. Um, and as a preparation this week for watching Time, uh, sorry, for talking about Time and the Rani, I stuck it on and I put it on in front for my other half to watch. His previous mm-hmm. exposure to Classic Who has been City of Death, which he enjoyed, and Talon's Wayne Cheyenne, which he enjoyed. I have a sneaking suspicion he may have enjoyed Time and the Rani more than those two. That is heresy. How can you? How could you put it on the same pedigree as the rich Robert Holmes dialogue or the witty Douglas Adams banter? Oh, I am going to talk about the rich dialogue of Time and the Rani and the wit that's inherent in that script. Um, mm. but the, the thing that, that stood out to me most of all is I think for somebody that hasn't been brought up on Classic Who, um, the, the quality of Classic Who is kind of <laughs> the same. Like, because it's TV from another time. Obviously, like, the content is different. But yeah. I, don't, I don't think he's got, like, a remarkable difference in the quality between Talons and Time and the Rani. Well, it's interesting you should say that, because I remember, for some insane reason, because I am not a normal, healthy human being, um, I was like to my parents, you have to sit down and watch City of Death. And both, and my mum... She couldn't make it through it. She just found. She thought this is too. I don't. I don't like this. And my dad watched the whole thing. They got to the end. It's odd. It's one of those stories. So if I'm watching on my own, I think it's astonishing. When I'm watching with other people, I'm aware of kind of how hammy it is and how people are, you know, acting, acting and up in it and. And I'm kind of going, oh no, oh, wish it was just more normal. You know, and oh god, I don't ever want Doctor Who to be normal. I mean, look at Time of the Rani. About as far from normal as you can get. Yeah, I have compiled a list of ten reasons as to why Time and the Rani is the best guilty pleasure story for people to watch. I thought for a moment, I thought that was dangerously close to saying the best Doctor Who story ever. Well, I'm sure I could make a case. Um, I'm sure you could. Okay, are you ready for this? I I'm not sure I am, to be honest. Agree or disagree with me, if you if you will. Okay, number one. Mm. It's camper than Christmas. There are colours so lurid on the screen that your eyes might bleed. The Rani has the craziest, like, dynasty hair you've ever seen. And a nose stud. Uh, Icona, do you know who Icona is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's got his fabulous, like, fluffy mullet. I mean, those rainbow-coloured bubble traps. McCoy's terrible jokes throughout. Those awful, <laughs> awful sayings that he gets wrong. And his pratfalls amongst the sets. I mean, that's, that's some of the campus stuff in all of Doctor Who, where he's throwing himself. It is literally like a pantomime. Mm, which is, I gather from your experience, part of the joy of this story. There's one moment where the Rani has her hands on her hips and goes, you know don't you? And then McCoy goes, over there! She's like, what? Uh, He throws her on the table. She's like, ah! It's just so crazy camp. And, you know, I'm coming to an age now where I am uh, coming to terms with my love of camp. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, go on. No, I think we have a. I think people have a weird relationship with, you know, stuff that's camp, because I remember I used to take Doctor Who, like, particularly, it was, like, in 2012 or 13 when, you know, Doctor Who was, like, 
at another kind of peak in terms of popularity and the anticipation of the the 50th anniversary. And someone was telling me, a friend of mine was going, I've always tried to like this show, but it's too camp for me. Like, I like hard sci-fi. And there was a moment (laughs) where it was like, nonsense, Dr. Who is very serious. It's not... Even remotely can. And then stick on any story from the season 24 and see if that argument holds up. Yeah, stick, in, stick anything on by, like, Russell D. Davis exactly. in, at his most. Russell D. Davis, like, the end of the world is so campy. To be honest, some of Russell T. Davis's approach is more season 24 <clears throat> than season 26. Mm. Colourful, entertaining, silly, funny... Do you know what the campiest thing about Time of the Rani is, though? Oh, please tell me. A selection of plastic bangles saves the day. They put these these hideous bangles on the brain and blow it up. I, I just can't... Fa- it's like, fashion accessories save the day. It's wonderfully camp. Do you know, I remember, like, years ago, I was looking at a blog, uh, like a Doctor Who blog, that was, like posting like stuff that was up up for up for auction like old like bits of set and props and not the bangles no no it was the brain it was oh my god i would love to have that brain see the brain that giant brain with the wiggling tendrils that's pretty camp as well I know, but it, it was clearly like a disused prop cheap prop from the 80s and it was like what 20 years <gasps> Oh, I would have paid thousands and thousands. <laughs> There's like you know, people would come into the house and be like, oh? "It's just like you know, like there's like a bidding war going on. It's like everyone's got their little sticks up. It is like you there, Mister Ford, in the front row. The brain is yours. <laughs> Yay! Twenty thousand pounds. And it's massive as well, isn't it? I'm not sure where I put it. it in the photo, it looked pathetically small. It looked like the size of a table lamp. Mm. I want. Okay, mm. number two. I mean, do you deny that Time of the Rani is camp? I, you, you, I can't. I can't deny. Yes, it's good. impossible. I'm off to a good start. Okay, number two is it is lit the literal interpretation of what Doctor Who should not have been doing at that point to regain its audience. And the fact that it is that is what makes it so utterly joyful. I feel like at the time, Doctor Who should have kind of gone season 26, a bit a contemporary, um, something uh, that people can relate to, a companion that you can relate to, maybe a doctor even that you can relate to, just something. There's nothing in Time of the Rani that anyone can relate to. Oh, are you, man. Are you having a laugh at me, Joe? What is more relatable than an episode that opens with, you know, <laughs> that, that, that asteroid is made of strange, strange matter? <laughs> what a monstrous experiment are you dabbling in now? I mean, look what you've got here, okay? You've got a, a cliched alien planet. You've got camp hijinks, crap jokes, a doctor and companion that are barely... Rep- I mean, if anyone can see themselves in Sylvester McCoy and Bonnie Langford in this story, I feel for you. Uh, you've got a plot that's techno-babble heavy, um, it's, and it's impossible to take seriously because it's all done at such a, a over-the-top level. 
I just think for a show that kind of needed to take itself seriously at this point to kind of salvage its reputation, it goes to the other extreme. And isn't that isn't, wonderful? Isn't that, so is that part of the joy of watching it? Yeah, watching it shouldn't exist. Like, and it does. <laughs> How wonderful. It's almost what it's like. It's the case against the show by yes, the show. Exactly. I think I put in my review. It's like having like watching Time in the Run is having like a really naughty wank. You know, it's like you really shouldn't be doing it and you shouldn't be enjoying it, but you know you are. It's just that is a, <laughs> it's an evocative description you provided. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to skip to number three. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I've already covered number three. Well, okay, I watched it with my other half and he fell in love with the Rani and I realised myself that she is one of the best female villains the show has ever had. Uh, she is having so much fun in this story and I think Kate O'Mara is the only actor in the entire thing that realises it's a comedy. Everyone else is playing this as a drama and she is just going for it. I still, I still, it's been a while since I've watched Time of the Running, but even I still viscerally, anytime I think of that story, I think the the bit where the Doctor's changing into all these different costumes. And it's when he's like, he's dressed as Napoleon, and he's like, a little portentous perhaps, and you've got Kato, she's like, pretentious is the word. That's brilliant, I love that line. There's another one as well where she's like, he's like, um... The Rani, there's not a spark of decency in her. And she just looks at the camera and goes, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> it's just, it's so manly. But, but do you know what? She's so much fun. And she is giving a genuinely committed performance, but a comic performance. And it kind of suits the story. I think where the story jars is where you've got um, like moments of drama, or they're trying to you know, present them as moments of drama. Where she's just having a, like, a laugh. I feel like I should say that as I was coming up with my choices, I nearly ended up with a Rani story as well. I nearly chose Dimensions in Time, <gasps> which I adore oh, with every fibre of my you're being. You're going on a um, journey, a very long journey. journey. <laughs> but ultimately, I was like, no, no, no. Dimensions in Time, a oh, true classic of would, 3D technology. I would honour you forever as the superior Naimon if you had chosen Dimensions in Time. I, I, you know, do you know what would make me really happy? If outside that that dumb pump from EastEnders, you saw a Naimon come out of it. That would truly make me happy. Must but be I decided... Uh, yeah, I, I decided... That uh, we should dedicate an entire episode to dimensions on time. There's too much to talk about. But yes, let's continue through your list. Okay, number four, the music, which is so dreadful. It's just delirious. It's it's Kef McCulloch, who I think this is his first story. Yeah, who's this? Is his first score for the show? He does the theme tune, which which. A lot of people say it's just appalling, but that's so ingrained into my childhood. I really love love the Kef McCulloch theme tune, even though I kind of acknowledge it probably is the worst one. But the music is like this weird, mad, techno, 80s camp. I, I just can't explain it. It's, it. it's in your face. It's really kind of jarring. It swings from everything to like... Um, Oh, I don't know. It's it's just mental. 
the soundtrack is out there for Time and the Rani, and I suggest that anyone who has not heard it, um, and they would like to hear how experimental a Doctor Who score can be, I use the word experimental with slight sarcasm, uh, they go and give it a listen. I was going to say, experimental implies some level of like artistic bravery of some kind. In the climax, he starts riffing with Doctor Who theme tune. It's like... And that's like the climax music. Oh, it's terrible. But I love it. It's really, it's, it's kind of like Death to the Daleks, which has a similarly unusual theme score. But it, it's very catchy. If, if you're do, doing some kind of like physical exercise, like you're going for a run or you're going for like a bike ride or what, what activity would benefit from listening to like the high octane score of Time of the Rani? Because um, I feel like you can practically hear Kef like banging away on the keyboard going, you get it? You get this? Good grief. What exercise? Rough sex? I don't know. Um, tre- no, don't. You can't even joke about that. That's a that's a yeah. laugh. Yeah, no, because there's a bit where it's like you could do some great moves to that. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm Jesus. Yeah, that's I'm sex a, on the brain today. I'm so sorry. Imagine just being in a bar and someone's like, "So, what's your kink then?" Oh, the soundtrack. Of time everybody, and everybody kind of like. Oh, hey, man. I, I'm sorry, but I can't perform without the Time of the Rhine soundtrack. <laughs> I, I'll do anything except anything involving the score of the Time of the Rhine. Okay, number five. For all of its interesting creative decisions, it looks good. Okay. Are you sure? It does. I mean, it has a quarry, but it's a good-looking quarry with, like, pools, and it's done from high angles, low angles. The director's trying to make that quarry look as it, it was supposed to be a forest originally, which probably would have worked better with the design of the Lacertians. But that quarry is one of the sexiest quarries in Doctor Who. Wow. Yes. There is some tough competition in that department, Joe. There are some very detailed sets. The lighting is very strong. There's a bit where you go down into the Tetraps kind of lair and, and it's really subdued, scary lighting. Um, there's, okay, I put a committed costumier. <laughs> they are very over-the-top costumes. But, like, I can kind of see what they're going with. With, with each of them. I think the Tetraps look good for the time. It's one of those monsters that kind of looks good from a distance and the closer you get to it, the less convincing it is. But I love the idea of it and the uh, the peripheral vision and how that's filmed. I do, I do remember, I think the first time I watched the, the infamous regeneration sequence in which a very tiny Sylvester McCoy sits inside Colin Baker's enormous costume Leave um, the girl. It's the oh, man I want. Truly an iconic camp line. Leave the girl. It's the man I want. Take him to my laboratory. The bubble traps are a fantastic effect. The model work is really good in it. Uh, the brain looks pretty good. It's bathed in like a pink line. It, it's a story where there's money on the screen. It's the beginning of the season, and you can see that they've got a bit of money. Uh, you know, find find your pleasures where you can. Tom and Arani doesn't look terrible. I I don't know. It has an aggressively pink skyline, Lucretia. Well, yeah, but again, they're trying something different using that paint box. It could just be another quarry with a 
you know, a normal sky. But they're trying to suggest it's, it's an alien landscape. It's the home planet that Mel clearly came from. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I have yet to get on to Mel. Um, okay, number six. Are you ready for this? It has some of the most glorious lions in Doctor Who history. <laughs> There's a line where... Um, the Rani says, um, I, no, sorry, Icona says, I've met your companion Mel, and the doctor's retort is, don't hold that against me. That's really, that's genuinely funny. <laughs> uh, McCoy says, what monstrous experiments are you babbling, oh, dabbling in now? That's it. Are you as clueless as you appear, Mel? Poor Mel, she doesn't get a great time. At one point, she says, I've had enough of this drivel. You can't say a line like that unless you're absolutely on solid ground with your material. I I feel like the it's like there are two choices you can make with a line like that. You can say drivel or piffle, and there is no substantive difference between which version of that line is worse. I think the best line, though, of the season, potentially, is, why was the Rani dressed like you, Mel? And she comes back with, perhaps she's fashion conscious. <laughs> what, really, what a bitch. Is just in the middle of some complex temporal brain <laughs> genius scheme. And she's like, what am I missing? What's lacking here? 80 shoulder pads. Oh, fabulous, aren't they? Like, and she's literally stepped just out of dynasty, so she probably feels very at home in them. Hmm. Oh, McCoy oh, says... Is that where she came from? Yeah, that, literally. She came from, from Dynasty two time in the Rani, I think. So she's used to playing high camp at this point. Um, McCoy in episode four. I, I just love this line. It means nothing. But when he's part of like the brain collective, he goes, Blessed are the pie makers because they will make like pastry. <laughs> when he's trying to wind the Rani up. I don't know. It, okay. It, it doesn't always shoot and score, but it. I think it is trying to be funny, and sometimes it really works, mostly because of the performance. Is is is? Am I right in? Am I correct in thinking this is the one where McCoy has like a hairdresser's headset over his face and he's like writhing uncontrollably? <laughs> it's like he's doing something obscene at the end of episode three because the camera's between his legs. <laughs> Oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> it's really dodgy. Oh dear! Oh my word! Okay, you ready for number seven? Uh, keep going. Okay, this is a story that mixes humanoid lizards and bats, a scheme to rewrite all history, enormous shoulder pads, a Bonnie Langford impression, a giant brain, a comedy doctor, and killer in the six insects. What more could you possibly ask for? If you want a story that, that shows you the, the, the wealth of storytelling possibilities in Doctor Who, Time and the Rani has it all. Yeah, whoever thought... Someone clearly is a, a secret genius when they're like, we have Bonnie Langford in the story, but you know what we need? We need someone doing an impression of Bonnie Langford. I was drinking gin whilst I watched Time in the Rani, and you know what? Oh, if you are under the influence, suddenly the quality reorders while you're watching it, and it all makes perfect sense. But like by, the- by the end of it, I was so drunk, I was like, oh, this is great. I love this. <laughs> you were about to say, you know, Genesis and Daleks, you got Stolen Earth, Turn Left, 
than time of the rock. Oh, no, exactly. And do you know what? I'm going to be completely honest with you, yeah? <laughs> I God. would rather pick time of the Rani off my shelf than case of androzani mm-hmm. uh genesis of the daleks and heaven sent mm-hmm. i would rather because, watch time of the Rani. it just brings me more they, joy because they don't because they don't it doesn't make you feel like oh god i i'm gonna die <laughs> yeah they're the bloody depressing i'm not saying they great drama they're brilliant stories but and this is a terrible story, but it just makes me feel better when I watch it. I've just had a very vivid recollection of that bit, and somehow, I don't know what it says about the quality of the story, but you have the bit where the Doctor is tampering with that weird triangle control set, yeah. and then Mel turns up, and he gets in a, like, a pratfall fight with her. That's right. And he's like, where's the Doctor? Under the carpet! <laughs> and, it's like, and he's like, she's like... Now we'll get to the truth. And it's like, hold tight. He's like very badly like restraining him. And McCoy's clearly like, ugh. But I'll be honest, watch that scene. Their chemistry is really good. And well, this is what I was going to say. And then moments later when, uh, you know, he says, try my heart. Yeah, yeah. And it's oddly like. He goes, he goes, Mel. And he gives her a little look. And you're like, oh my God, this could actually work. (laughs) There is one moment. One moment in the story where you're just like, this is compelling. This is the right call. But I'm glad you brought up Mel because she is my eighth mm. point. Because I, I find myself very conflicted with her in this story because she spends a lot of it screaming her head off and setting women's mm. rights back about 50 years. Mm-hmm. But then at one point she saves Icona from one of the bubble traps. Yeah? yeah. And then in the next scene, she's tongued by one of the tetraps. And hung upside yeah. down. And then in another scene, she's deactivating the bangles and saving the lives of the Lycurtians. And she kind of swings between being really proactive and useful and being completely useless. I don't know what to think of her. I, I, sometimes I think she's like really independent and spunky and, and really fun. And other times I think she's the most useless mayor that the show's ever given us. <laughs> and... But like, and I think if I'm correct, you, along with Perry, you think Mel's actually had quite a a, a really decent, dramatic, extended life on the audio plays as well. For sure, she's she's given the sort of um, character material she never got on the TV. Well, she's given a character for a start, <laughs> and she's given a background, and she's given ex boyfriends and like job placements, and I don't know. She just sketched in far more convincingly. She's allowed to be a computer programmer that, you know, she can bring her skills to the story. She's a person. Does she do any computer programming in this story? Well, she just deactivates one of the bangles with, with a, uh, you know, those lamps that are made out of like plastic strands. Yeah. Those 80s lamps. Yeah. She uses one of those to kind of deactivate the bangle. So that, God, that, that's really basically the only computer program that she does in the whole series. So God bless Pip and Jane for giving her that. They were just like, wait a minute, she's a computer programmer. We did this in our first story. And mentioning Pip and Jane, that's my ninth point, is how I think Pip and Jane think they are genuinely, at times, writing a piece of drama with moments of pathos. Because there's a moment where 
Faroon realizes her daughter's died and she's like standing there in floods of tears. And Wanda Ventum, who's giving a wonderful performance, you're suddenly in like a, a proper BBC drama, even though she looks ridiculous. And then it cuts back to, you know, Kate O'Mara in the shoulder pads again. I just find like the slingshot between these moments of, of like genuine drama and, and the panto humour is all, um... all over the shop. I feel like I'm obliged to say that um, when I was little and my parents worked out that I actually really, I was into not just the original, uh, the new series, I was also starting to take an interest in the classic series. Mm-hmm. Um, they got me a DVD and having <laughs> established last week that my dad got me, for, as a Christmas present, he got me Horns of Nymon, mm-hmm. Underworld, uh, sorry, two weeks ago, it got, got me a box set including Horns of Nymon, the Time Monster and Underworld. The first Doctor Who story they ever got me was Mark of the Rani. Wowzers. So my impression of, you know, <laughs> the sh- of the early show was informed by the rich thesaurus of Pip and Jane Baker. <laughs> Wowzers. I'm surprised you went back for more. I, I don't think... I think I sat, must have sat there just baffled by the dialogue. Well, um, I, I mean, they do use very rich language, but it's all used in the correct context. We must give them credit. Yeah. There is. Colin Baker says that he loves the idea of children watching Pip and Jane stories and, and you know, hearing antediluvian and, oh God, what else? Spurious morality and trying to figure yeah. out what they mean. Oh, is it that? Don't you think that's marvellous? If someone came back and was like, my my understanding of the of the English language is richer and better for having watched Time, Time of the, the Rani. <laughs> okay, so the last thing on my list, I have already mentioned already, but it's worth mentioning again, and that is how deliriously enjoyable I find Kate O'Mara to be. Um, uh-huh. She's no longer with us. I wish she'd had far more appearances than she did. Like, I know her and Sylvester McCoy talked about doing a story set on a pirate ship with the, with the <laughs> Rani as the pirate. Like, how uber camp would that have been? <laughs> I don't know. I think um, the Rani abducting the Mary Celeste. Something like that. Oh, it would be amazing. But um, something that Ludo said while we were watching it, he was like, wouldn't it be amazing if from this story on it was like the Rani adventures? (laughs) Never mind the Doctor. He's just rubbish. Let's just go. Let's just follow like a couple of series of the Rani going through time. Oh, it'd be brilliant. With Bonnie Langford. <gasps> oh, yes. And they, and they both, every episode, they dress in the same costume. <laughs> oh, my God, I would pay good money to watch that. Yeah, but, like, in every oh. episode as well, like, they're wearing the same costume, but the Rani always looks like she's put in the minimum effort of, like, looking like Bonnie Langford. You know how, like, Missy is with Clara in... The Magician's Apprentice and um, 
the witch is familiar. It would be that yeah. kind of a relationship where she like she uses her as like the canary in the mine. She kicks her out the TARDIS to make sure the radiation level's good. <laughs> oh, it would, be, it would be priceless. <clears throat> um, yeah. But anyway, no. But uh, yeah, I, I just think. Um, Kate O'Mara brings an awful lot of charisma and presence to any story that she's in. And she is probably my number one reason why this is my guilty pleasure, because she is so funny. I, uh, I, I, I have very fond memories of her delivery, particularly when she's like, we're on the cursor and it's far away from your meddlesome influence or whatever the line is. Oh, there's just so many. But I love it at the end where her plan comes to fruition. She's like, I have the Loy Hargill, which is an anagram of Holy Grail. Thank you, Pippin Jane. <laughs> for, our, for our attentive listeners and viewers at home, oh, is, that, is that some kind of subtle signaling? Is this the Holy Grail of Doctor Who episodes? Yes, it is. Yes, thank Are you. Are we wrong? It's, it's the Da Vinci Code of Doctor Who. You finally unlock the code. Time and the Rani yeah. is the ultimate Doctor Who story. It's not It's not Power of the Daleks. That's not like the Lost Holy Grail. Oh, this is it. No. Oh, that's drivel. Honestly. And I'm joking. I love Honestly. it. Honestly. But, okay, it's colourful. It's funny. It's silly. It, it isn't what the show should be doing at the time, but it is doing it anyway. It's pantomimic. It's... Just enormous fun. And that's why I'm, Time in the Rani is my ultimate guilty pleasure. I Is it funny because it's so bad it's good? Yes. Or is there, like, no. genuine? Okay. No, I, it's so I, bad I, it's good. <laughs> it's like a really fantastic B-movie. Is it a B-movie? I'm pretty sure it's, like, several grades lower. <laughs> I've seen some worse looking B movies, like visually, yeah. but um, intellectually, maybe emotionally, uh, creatively. You know what? It can't possibly be lower than a B movie because, as you said, <laughs> it has the sexiest quarry in the entire show. Exactly. It's so bad, I get intense enjoyment from enjoying something that bad. Wonderful. Well, if it brings you joy, then, you know, who's. <laughs> Then the person who takes issue with us should definitely not be listening to this podcast. Because <laughs> we've already talked about Underworld. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Good grief. Anyone would rather watch Underworld than Time and the Rani? Just stop listening, all right? <laughs> we don't want you in the audience. Oh, I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be saying things like that, should I? No, no. Let's not. Let's not antagonise our listeners, Joe. <laughs> Okay, well now I'm very intrigued to hear what your guilty pleasure is. Well, for me, okay, so I watched this story, and <clears> it, I, <throat> as I was watching it, it felt weird because I was just like, I'm not sure this is a guilty pleasure. I think I just genuinely love this story. Um, and there was a part of me that was just like, no, everybody else is wrong, and I am right. So would it be a guilty pleasure in terms of you really kind of find it very pleasurable but a lot of people don't i think so i think it's, I, I think it's one of these stories where i'm aggressively out of lockstep with the rest of the fandom people hate um, it so oh, we haven't even said what it is yeah, yeah i probably should so my my pick is from series nine 
and it is The Girl Who Died. So it's our first new series episode that we're covering here. And someone who has watched the new series is probably, why are they opening with The Girl Who Died? I had a friend that loathed that episode. I'm Abs- sure. And the one that came after as well. Um, yeah. I had a real issue with the show kind of at the time in general, but really loathe those two. So why don't you tell us why you love it then? I I love it primarily because it's 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 rubbish. It's <laughs> but it's it's deliberately rubbish, and that's part of the point. That was my argument for time and the Rani. <laughs> No, but it's so in like thematically, it makes it makes so much sense to the story. It's all about people, really rubbish people, like very incompetent people who are rubbish and terrible um, and incompetent, and yet they nonetheless tr- succeed, like and triumph and silliness and is what wins the day because oh. it's a, it's. A, Damn it, that's a really good argument. Silliness wins the day. Because it's like, you know, you've got like a series of deeply rubbish characters. You have the Doctor and Clara who, uh, who get... <gasps> Are you saying that they're rubbish? Oh. No, uh, hang on, let, let me... Let, I, I'm going to say yes, they are rubbish. <laughs> okay, um, go on. They, they, get, they literally step out of the TARDIS and they're kidnapped by Vikings they themselves can't even take seriously. <laughs> they, get, they get put on a longboat and they're captured immediately because they're rubbish. <laughs> they, the, Viking, the Viking villagers are rubbish. Like, they abduct all the 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 Viking warriors and it killed them and the only people left in the town are the p- people who are really oh, rubbish and the Vikings yeah yeah and you and you have Mamaya who are themselves incredibly <laughs> rubbish <laughs> they're rubbish another fabulously camp performance there as well from the the, the lead oh, villain I really should know his name but I don't. Odin isn't it the it's Odin. I, I don't know the actor who plays him, but oh. he, he is. Dis- but he's discount Brian Blessed because they originally cast Brian Brian Blessed in that role. They never did. No, they did. They I, genuinely cast I Brian didn't Blessed. Know that. Why he, didn't he do it? He I think he had something else on. He just couldn't commit to the film. Oh, how brilliant would he have been in that scene in the sky? I know. He, like, imagine seeing Brian Blessed's ridiculously big face in the sky. Um, but like Shielder herself is also like Maisie Williams's character is also a bit rubbish. She undoes Clara's really good plan when she talks down the Maya. She creates oh, the whole conflict. Really bugs me when she's there, you know, giving it large to the to the villains. Oh, but it's so funny because you literally have the villain who's like, "You almost had me talking. Talk is for cowards." <laughs> So let me get this straight. Your argument here is that everybody in this story is a bit crap. Yes, and they kind of embrace it. Like it's not, it's not, not in the story. The plan they come up with oh, that's crap to defeat well. Amaya <laughs> in literally Clara herself when they unveiled the puppet, which the audience doesn't see until later. Clara's literal line of dialogue is that is rubbish. <laughs> 
she says that in the script. But they come up with the silliest plan, and silliness is what wins the day. They literally beat these incredibly melodramatic, test, literal testosterone-guzzling monsters, not by actually fighting them or playing them at their own game, this whole, we're going to send 10 of my warriors against the best of your village. They embrace the fact that they can't win that fight, and they come up with a silly plan that is... Oh, is it's, it's, isn't it that big long boat or something? The head of the long the boat. Oh, they, it's like this really crack. <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? You like you can see with like from a very serious fan's point of view, watching that scene where they're all laughing and joking and taking on, uh, you know, they come storming in, we're going to kill you, um, and it's all very, very daft. You can see how a, a very serious fan would be like, oh, this is just awful. Oh, no, absolutely. Why it, is this it, show it, not taking itself seriously? I know, but it doesn't, it literally, it, one of the things I found really interesting, like watching this from the get-go, is that because you open in the middle of another adventure. You have mm. Clara in deep space and the Doctor kind of getting her out of trouble. And we never find out what really happened. But it's really, it's quite funny. Because the way it's shot is incredibly dynamic. You have like these special effects of Clara in space, the camera spinning around, and you have Capaldi flying around the console. But you never, it's kind of also secretly rubbish because you never see, you don't even see a battleship of whatever they're up against. And even that you've got this like gross little slug in her space suit, when it appears on the console, in the console room, you don't even see it. It hops around and they kind of like, just, oh, does he just step around. on it? Does he step on it? I can't he remember. He does step on yeah. it. He steps on it and Peter Capaldi pulls the silliest expression where he's like, like he's like, ah? He's like, barely paying attention to Clara. But, so it is by design very silly mm. and very, and outgoingly rubbish. Um, and I think the most people, I think a lot of people miss the point that that's the kind of story they're trying to tell. Like everyone's like, oh, you know, the, the effect of Odin in the sky, it's terrible. It's awful. But that's the point. Yeah. The Maya are so shit. Even their robots are crap, aren't they? They just look... Yeah, they're little robot suits. <laughs> they're so cute. They're... They don't even have digits on their hands. They just got these little robot fists. Um, do you do you think? Um, I, I find that like people were really down on on the fun Capaldi episodes. As I've heard are. a lot of people say, it doesn't play to his strengths, but I think he's really good in this story. He he gets a lot of really fun lines, and like it's it's. It's a different type of performance from him because obviously Peter Capaldi, as a performer, as a comic actor, is best known for, you know, namely Malcolm Tucker and the thick of it. Mm. But he's generally well known more broadly for playing really mean-spirited, acerbic, quite witty characters. But it, there's a cynicism in the dialogue. Yeah. And it's, well, it's I would, hard. Wouldn't you say that's still there here? I think there's a there's a... A lovely line in kind of dry put downs. Oh, there are like, and it's really interesting. The moment where he just decides that you know the villagers 
are uh, he's he's like I he says I something like I applaud your bravery, but I deplore your stupidity. Um, and he's and it's very like season eight Capaldi, like he's very much like I'm not helping you. Mm. Um, and he actually outlines a really good case for why he shouldn't help them because it will put more people in danger. And but nonetheless, amidst all this, because there's a really weird, interesting thing with Peter Capaldi in this and Clara in this story and with Jenna Coleman, which is that even though it is arguably the silliest episode of the entire season, it is also weirdly important. A lot of what for them for their their relationship for their dynamic like yeah. Clara Peter Capaldi the twelfth Doctor says you know oh you know I have a duty of care that's when he first says that which is the lynch emotional linchpin of the end of the series when Clara say they're saying I have a duty of care to look after you and Clara say I never I asked never you to look after me yeah and it's not, I think it starts in this story but don't you, you think already, as well they're so relaxed with each other the actors there's oh, a there's, so there's a I, I find the chemistry between them in this one I don't think it always works for me but in this one it just sings their chemistry and it's it's largely because I think the Jenna Coleman and Peter Capaldi, they you they clearly really love working mm. with each other. But they, I think in this episode in particular, they both know when to give each other moments to breathe, yeah. like as performers. Um so like there's a scene where um the doctor is talking about like all the reasons why he should not help this village. And that is traditionally a moment where you would expect the companion to very strongly say, No, you need to help them. But Jenna Coleman and the, the writing and Jenna Coleman don't actually do that. She, what she does is she instead very gently prods him and asks him, like, it's uh, about it. And he, she lets the doctor undo his own thinking. Mm. Um, which the baby stops crying, him. doesn't it? The baby stops crying. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you've just decided to stay because the baby stopped crying. So there's a lot of really sweet character moments between them in here. Like, it's it's a silly episode, but everybody's juggling a lot of different tones. Um, like, when you, you get these really tender scenes where Capaldi and Coleman are really doing very sincere character acting, and then you get the moment where Peter Capaldi sees... Odin appear in the sky, and I tell anybody who is unconvinced in the comedy of the episode to look at the expression on his face when he sees giant Odin, and he realizes he's been upstaged by somehow a shit Odin, which is somehow better than him. He just has this look, and it's it, it's a, it's a performance that is given. It's an episode that gives the actors a lot of different tones to play with. And it, like, there's some serious stuff in here, but there's uh, so much silliness. Well, kind of the um, seriousness it, hits in the last ten minutes, doesn't it? It's something the tone yeah. just shifts completely. Yeah, it, it gets very dramatic in the second half, and um, I think the to- I think for some people the tonal shifts are kind of are quite pronounced. No, I mean that's quite um, unusual for New Who. I think I think New Who generally like the episode picks a tone and sticks with it. Old Who, there was there's some stories um, like the Mythmakers, which 
it's for three episodes it's a comedy and then for the last episode it's a massacre you know where it it did that and again i think it was similarly jarring yeah but also even in some of the serious moments it's still really silly like there's a bit where uh, it's after this actually quite excitingly shot bit where the vikings are being pushed down a corridor and the disintegrators are firing up um and we cut then cut back to you know Maisie Williams looking at the disintegrated remains of the village and uh, the the Maya who gets some some of my favorite lines we're just like neck <laughs> or um war oh, what's the other one it's just like uh, she's she, Clara asks the Maya like why are you doing this why else the joy of war <laughs> Can't you see it on my face? Um, but even like in this really quite seriously played moment where Clara is doing a, a very doctorly thing and confronting the villains, the villains say, you're alive because of this advanced technology that you have, which is the Sonic's sunglasses. But then you just kind of realize this is a man in a Viking costume Surrounded by two dumb robots <laughs> holding up a broken pair of Ray Ban sunglasses. That is literally what you are watching. Um, so you're saying it's like essentially like a really naff classic Doctor Who, but deliberately so. Yeah, and it, but it makes like this really sweet point that you don't need to be a Viking warrior to win the day. You can just feel this triumph. So reckless. And I think that I. I think that's marvelous, but it's. I think this episode sits in an odd place in the Jamie Matheson kind of episodes because it's the silliest. Yeah, and I think. For sure. I think the reason it's the least popular is in part because it is so deliberately silly. Because all of his other ones, you've got Oxygen, Mummy on the Orient Express, and Flatline. They're all pretty, pretty serious and gun. I went to a convention where Jamie Matheson uh, did a panel, and he mentioned how what he really loves to write is character stuff. And in Flatline, um, he had to take out all of the character stuff that he wanted because it was just plot, plot, plot. Plot triumphed and the character stuff was just irrelevant. Here, I feel like he's got like a whole episode of, because the plot is a bit naff. Um, you know, it is. It's, of so all dumb. the four, it's his kind of least uh, robust plot, isn't it? Like you think of Oxygen, you think of Flatline and Mummy. Is that the four? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's th- this is just like lots of lovely, charming, silly, funny moments. And I yeah. don't know if New Who always has time for that, really, in its kind of 45 minutes. So this is kind of like a very relaxed narrative. But I think the yeah. payoff is worth it because a lot of those scenes are very charming, very funny, very... And I say silly because I have also come to embrace silly in my later years. The bit, the bit with the <laughs> Benny Hill theme tune, I think, is just the best scene in the whole episode. Yeah, they literally win the episode by threatening the, the villains to upload a video, <laughs> Space YouTube, featuring Benny Hill. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, I, you know, what I found very funny is because I knew you were going to talk about Time of the Rani, but like, there's a bit of a McCoyish quality to the doctor here. There's a point where he literally mixes his metaphors up like McCoy. <laughs> yeah. He actually, he goes like he says fly like a bird and float like a nose, which is exactly the sort of thing McCoy would say. And I've got to say Odin would not look out of place next to the Rani. 
Oh, absolutely not. She'd be he'd be a good henchman for Barani. But um, but um the, going back to to the last ten minutes, I f- I found it's particularly the last scene, uh, which I still think is fantastic. Uh, the last scene uh, with which is just uh, music playing, isn't it? Maisie Williams and the camera yeah. swooping around her as time's going on. Really interesting way to tie two episodes together. Yeah. Oh, like the ending shot. Because you know this episode came out, I think about five years ago now, mm. and some of it, some of the effects in the episode have clearly dated. There's a funny little gag where um, uh, the Doctor is training them, uh, the villagers, a bit like uh, the Seven Samurai, I think, um, and he says they're ready for the real swords. And yeah. then there's a smash cut to like the village on fire. <laughs> that's that's and, brilliant. Yeah, but also you can clearly tell the village is not actually on fire. It's just some really crap CGI effect. Yeah. And, and I, I, like, admittedly, <laughs> that effect at the end doesn't really hold but, up. Yeah. You know, you can see she's yeah. on it. But it's, what's being implied is really interesting. Yeah, and it's really impressive how it does it because it does it without any dialogue whatsoever and you get the entire tone of what Maisie Williams' character is going through. And the All implications of what? Uh, Capaldi's Doctor has done mm, as well. I, I, don't, I, I, I question whether that was actually paid off particularly well as the season went on, but certainly yeah. in that moment, I think that's a really interesting way to take the series. But it's interesting because Shielder herself is set up as a very much um, a kind of good choice for the Doctor to be a companion. Um, because you know she she describes herself as this outsider, mm. and there's this weird kind of I think I'd, you could read as a very gender fluid line where she says like the girls all thought I was a boy, the boys all thought I was just a girl. She doesn't fit in anywhere, um, and she says she knows I'm yeah. strange. You know, I never she thought believed- of that. And under other circumstances, she probably would have been a really good companion for Capaldi's daughter. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a really sweet moment where she, she the doctor is describing him, the way he lives his life. And it's such a sweet exchange where, and it's so softly played where she says, um, you know, the doctor describes the way he lives his life and she says, I pity you. And then he says, I will mourn for you because of the, when she dies in the coming battle, he says, I know which one I would prefer. But I, th- I think what gets people is the fact that it veers from like a moment like that to the to quite possibly one of the insanest scenes I have ever seen in this ridiculous show, which is Peter Capaldi storming out, going Clara, Clara, like a really excited kid because he's worked out the solution to the episode, which is fucking electric, electric eels. Electric Peter Capaldi, I swear to Christ, has never looked so insane. Yeah. He's, he's, He's like, there's nobody else in this two two horned town mentioned that you had eels. <laughs> Everyone's like, everybody's literally like, what? And he's like, I give you fire in the water. And the way he looks, he then goes, electric eels. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's loving the chance to lighten up a bit, isn't he? He's really embracing that. Yeah, you can tell he's loving the the kind of slapstick pantomime he's been given. Like, even in the Odin scene, which has the sweet moment where he's like, I'm going to con them with a yo-yo. There's, and uh, when Odin shows up, it's so silly. He's like, do not believe this foolish trickery. 
and throws the yo-yo and it doesn't roll. And he's like, it's supposed to do that. Okay, well, here's a question. And um, it's, yeah. You've named uh, some fantastic reasons as to why you enjoy this story so much. Why does this one end at the bottom? Why is this at the bottom of practically everybody's season nine, you know, order ranking? I think, I think part of it is because of not necessarily her performance, but because of what was implied by having Maisie Williams in this episode and having it in a setting that is very reminiscent of Game of Thrones. Okay. I think. Well, I well, think you think people uh, thought that she was going to be Arya Stark. I think possibly. Um, I think they. I think they were expecting a very kind of serious character, not unlike her character in Game of Thrones. And it's in a Viking setting, so it evokes that kind of rustic, um, you know, medieval setting that the Game of Thrones has. Um, And it doesn't go for that, not even a little bit. It goes for really broad comedy. Do you know what I think people's problems with this episode is? Mm? I just think there's a section of Doctor Who fandom that just doesn't have a sense of humour and doesn't want the show to laugh at itself. Oh, because this this episode is definitely laughing at itself yeah, a little all bit. the way laughing. through. And you and I we, watched this on transmission together, didn't we? It's the we first did. one we watched the, together. And we were laughing along with it. We were having great fun with it. Yeah, and it's it's an episode that is it's like ribbing itself it's like nudging itself like in a very affectionate way which is healthy for a show to do from time to time i can imagine it's the Um, same sort of fans that don't like the christmas episodes that didn't enjoy unicorn and the wasp you know they want doctor who to be heaven sent and human nature and blink all the time you know but one of the joys of doctor who is that it can be very serious and very scary but it can also be bloody stupid and fun as well you know that's 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 something for the show to embrace and i know at least in this episode there are people who think in those last 10 minutes uh the tone swerves so violently um but it's almost like it relaxes you in the first sort of 30 minutes it makes you think, oh, okay, this is this isn't going to come to nothing. This is just going to be a bit of fluff, and then it just kind yeah. of sticks the knife in in the last ten minutes. Yeah, but I think it's part of what the episode tries to say about the Doctor, which is that even in an episode which is so light and frothy and silly, um, even in one of his silliest adventures, it still exact. It it still takes a toll. It takes you know a Shielder's character, and he's like. It's a, it's like the opposite of uh, the ending of the Doctor dances in a way, mm. where the Doctor is in this silly silly world, and even in this slightly self aware episode, it still t- takes a chunk out of him. It still bites at him, and he just kind of goes, "Well, fuck it, I'm gonna save this person," and then it has to deal with the consequences of that. I, I love the moment as well, where it's all high comedy. And everyone's like, whoa, we saved the day, woo! And then suddenly they realise she's dead. And it's yeah. like, oh, it, it really, because of the tone shift, it's wrenching. Yeah, it, pl- it plummets a lot. Mm. And there are a lot of lingering shots on, on the villagers 
including, as it turns out, I saw a Twitter post that pointed it out. There's like one extra in the Capaldi series, no. in the Capaldi season, who appears in like Mummy on the Earth Express. Oh, wow. She's in the Apprentice. She's then in The Curl of Fire. She's the bad wolf extra who's all through time and space. Yeah, just perpetually in the background, just kind of going. Uh, <laughs> a shocked expression um, on her face. I would also like to point out that for people who think this episode is silly with no point, there is a scene where the Doctor is talking through the Vikings, like because they're all saying, you know, we will stay and fight, we will win this, we will learn how to fight the Maya, and the Doctor actually acts as an audience surrogate here. He really goes, he asks deliberately all the questions that the audience would probably have in this set of like, why don't you just run off into the woods and camp out for a week? Mm. Why do you, why do you have to stay here? And he keeps pointing it out. But, and, um, and the Vikings play it for comedy for a lot. And it results in this very funny moment. Again, it's one of these shots where you can see that Jenna Coleman and Peter Capaldi are really funny actors, which is where he asks everybody to raise their hands of the people who have fought in battle. And the only people are yeah. him who raised his hand and then Jenna Coleman. Yeah. And Peter Capaldi has this look on his face where he's at first very incredulous and then thinks about it. Like, he has this look where he's like, oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, sorry, my bad. Um, he's very funny in this. I, I, I think his, um, his kind of comic performances are really underrated. I think, I th- I think so too, personally. And he, he, he's really charming. Mm. And it really... At, and his, at his best, he's probably the most charming of the new series, Doctors. It, I don't think he had the opportunity as much as perhaps he could have. In Series 10, I feel as if he got the opportunity quite a lot. In Series 8, I feel as if he hardly ever got the opportunity. Series 9 is yeah. a bit of a mixed bunch. But it's interesting because, in a way, it kind of play, that it kind of plays that to its advantage because there's a bit where the doctor is reading um, what is it? Uh, his two thousand year old diary, mm. which is a good gag and a good classic gag. Um, and Clara is then teleported back down to the planet, and he runs and he runs at her, and he's about to hug her, and then teases her, like, "I'm not a hugger," and thumbs her up. And then just embraces that ah, and just gives yeah. him a big old ball. But that shows you how far and, they've come from the end of the previous series, where he wouldn't. Well, exactly. You know. It like I know people can argue that you know the characterization of the twelfth Doctor and particularly the twelfth Doctor and Clara veers dramatically mm. from season to season, even within the same season. But in moments like that, you do get a sense of that progression. I'd say and this even, is this is one of those stories where. They're made for each other. I'd say there's only yeah. a handful of those where I really feel that, that kind of fourth Doctor and Sarah, fourth Doctor and Romana, seventh Doctor and that kind of, God, these two are literally, this is his companion, this is who he's meant to be with. I get that mm. all the time with Bill. I, I, I think they click straight away and it works all the way through the season. With Clara, I could probably name three episodes where I really feel that strongly and this is one of them. And it's what I what I find something that I really like. And again, I know some people don't like this as much, but I think in this story it works quite well. Mm-hmm. Which is that you you get Clara in a very kind of doctor ish kind of role, 
um, which they which they actually did in Jamie Matheson's last script, which is Flatline. And I know some people complain about it in other places where it becomes Clara becoming very dominant and the show's more. I'm about sorry, her. she literally she becomes the Doctor in what God was it? Death in Heaven. It's her face in the title sequence. Mm. Which I I kind of love just for how cheeky it is, but I know it really annoyed other people. Yeah, really. But in this episode, <laughs> but in this episode, um, there it's not so much that you know she's better at being the Doctor than than he is. It's the fact that they tr- they're at a point where they trust each other's abilities so much that they can both believe they can share that responsibility together. Mm. Like you know when the Doctor is like when after the big hug. The Peter Capaldi is talking about like he's going through the diary, explaining through the Maya, and like, but they're pra- and he's talking about how they're up, they're practical, they get what they want and they leave, and he just, but he just so sweetly assumes and is confident in the fact that Clara can do what he did. He's like, you talk them, you talk them down. I know you could, you could do that, and that's when Clara is like, I think we just declared war on them. It's like, ah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, obviously, originally Clara wasn't going to be in this season. Um, there was potential that it was going to be the woman from last Christmas that was going to be in this series. This, epi- this episode is probably the one episode I would say that feels like like she has been written into this season um, to be a part of it because a lot of this season I find Clara's in the first two she's off with Missy and the Zygon Invasion Inversion she's off isn't she in that virtual yeah, world? Yeah. She doesn't appear at all in the next episode, I don't think, or just in one scene. Um, oh, this and Sleep No More, maybe, but let's not talk about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so I, th- I think this is kind of like the one pin in the season where Clara kind of works. And it's, it's some. I think a lot of that has to do with, although it is setting up, like arc stuff, like it sets up the hybrid stuff very stupidly at the end. It's just like Peter Capaldi's just like he, she, Shielder has machine, and she is a human. Oh god! And that, well, she's she a hybrid. Oh it, god! Did it? I that, that arc just didn't work at all for me. But uh, even is setting up arc stuff. It primarily sets up character stuff, mm. but and. It's setting up character arc stuff. It's about character, the characters' relationships and where they're going. But when it's not doing that, it is a story where they're just allowed to be the Doctor and Clara. Yeah. And and frankly, they, I feel as if they should have been to get the payoff that you wanted in Face the Raven and the end of the season. We needed a lot more of the girl who died, uh, Doctor and Clara. I feel. I think so. But you know what? You know what? What do I know? Because I remember I there was a video on YouTube which was um, uh, like the, the, the Doctor and Clara arriving in the village. And uh, I left a comment on YouTube. Uh, I was like, I think, I, is it, am I mad? Because this is one of my favorite episodes. And I got one comment back, which is somebody who just went, yes. Oh, well, that told you. Yeah, I was just like, fair enough. Oh, Jack, I'm no stranger to uh, internet criticism, so get used to that. Yeah, I was just kind of like, you know what? You, you stated your case. That's fine. Just, just nod and smile <laughs> and, and move on with your opinion. Ah, uh, but it has. But this episode has great lines. It has great camp lines. War is our way. <laughs> um, but these lines are made for you to say, by the way. 
Yeah, and it even has like it had that sequence has one of my favorite lines where um the doctor says like you know he doesn't recognize a shielder and he's like I don't know it's too much time travel people think premonition isn't real but uh, think of it uh, but it's not it, it is real it's just remembering in the wrong direction uh, and then and there are lovely little moments and lines that I think make this a good episode but I should. I, the one thing I'm going to say quickly, because um, I ha- I realize I have been hammering on quite a bit. I'm going to say why I think this is a guilty pleasure rather rather than an underrated classic. <laughs> underrated classic. Come on. I can't even say that with a straight face. Uh, firstly, it is so over the top. The Doctor is over the top. Clara is a bit over the top. Everything is so up there in terms of how silly it's being played. The effects are a bit rubbish now. The 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 setup is silly. The plot is ridiculous. It literally ends with the Benny Hill scene. Um, it is <laughs> probably the most frock episode of the entire new series. I'm tempted to I'm tempted to put my flag down on that uh-huh. one. And it is actually no, I think one of the other episodes we're going to talk about is possibly more oh wrong. yes yeah yes um, for sure should we do we uh, but yeah in short this is a good episode it has a lot of surprisingly interesting things on its mind and nobody acknowledges this or appreciates this or discusses this so all of you listening go watch that episode again I do oh well this is why we're doing this podcast yeah no I love this episode I think I, I called this episode in my review online um, a glass of pure sunshine. Yeah, I think you said something like it's a glass of either it's either a cold beer or a glass of crisp lemonade. Yeah, it is. It is very, very refreshing in the Peter Capaldi era, which can tend to be quite dark and dour. <laughs> yeah. But do we want to talk about the... A classic episode you asked me to watch. Oh, yes. Okay, my my other. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll go back to mine, and then we'll go back to yours. We decided to do two each. I know we said we were only going to do one. Um, We won't spend as long on these two, because we've already hit uh, well over an hour and a bit now. Um, We can just talk about Dogs Who a lot. Sorry. But my second choice is... Planet of the Daleks. Now, you, go on. This one, was, this one was weird for me because you didn't ask me to watch Planet of the Daleks. No. You asked me to watch episode three. Yeah. Do you want to know why? Episode three oh, just encapsulates me. Planet of the Daleks as a whole. It's like a series uh-huh. of escape and captures. Um, it has some quite dynamic action in it um, for the time. It's It's... Fairly well realised. Um, there's a really stupid escape up a ventilation shaft. Um, there's a there's a really exciting bit where this molten ice is coming pouring down the shaft. Um, it has the Daleks being, you know, a bit daft. Um, <laughs> you spend this entire episode just going, what the fuck is <laughs> happening? Um, no, idea. no they're, they're really rubbish in this in fact they're so rubbish at the end the supreme Dalek comes along and blows the top off the Dalek that's in charge because he's so rubbish 
He basically says, you are really rubbish, die. <laughs> and takes over. But then he does an even more rubbish job. Um, it's got like a jumper. Can, we... can I... Sorry, go on. No, 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 no. I'll bring this up later. John Pertwee, you were saying. Uh, it's got John Pertwee giving like a treatise on uh, courage and bravery in episode three. So it's even got his little speech. It's just, it's, it absolutely encapsulates Pertwee who. Uh, it's taking itself far too seriously. But I feel like the conviction of everybody pushes it through. And if you can go with it, because it is set on a, you know, a crazy studio jungle planet with an ice cano, if you can push through, it's just, it's really exciting and, and fun. It's, it's okay. This is my, this is my rainy day, Doctor Who. It's six episodes on another planet with a bunch of cliches and a really charismatic... What? What are you laughing? You said the word ice cano. It is an ice cano. Sorry, continue. Rainy day. Rainy day is a good time to watch an ice cano. Exactly. I mean, it's a Terry Nation planet. Of course there's an ice cano. Yeah, he loves the, the, the environment is somehow hostile. Exactly. Yeah, and this has got the most hostile environment of all. Deadly jungle plants, uh, molten ice bubbling out all over the place, vine, uh, these horrible fleshy vines like, that wrap around you. I feel like there's a production meeting where someone is like, like it's like Terence Dix and Barry Lance are just like, this is great, like this is good stuff. However, you have done these kind of things over and oh, over again. Terence, okay. are you ready? Well, okay, you've had the de deadly jungle. You know what? I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you all an ice, ice cano. <laughs> this is literally no. This is the greatest hits Terry Nation package. I, I think I believe he tried to sell the same story again, uh, and they made him go away and write something different afterwards. Because uh, and that's when Genesis of Daleks came about because he basically tried to sell them another story on a jungle planet. With, yeah, and then they. And then they tried to do it again in Destiny of the Daleks and Douglas Adams is like, no, nah, we're not doing that. But literally, you have got, are you ready for this? You've got Aggressive Jungle yeah. Planet, which is uh, Daleks' master plan. Um, you've got a, a heavy use of bombs, which is Dalek Invasion of Earth. You've got a deadly virus, that's Dalek Invasion of Earth. Treaties on passive, pacifism, which is the Daleks. Um, escapes up the lift shaft, which is every Terranation story. Um, people hiding inside Daleks, which is the Daleks again. Literally, this whole story is cobbled together of of his old Doctor, but it's so purely like refined Doctor Who escape, capture, excitement, um, just ridiculous cliche. It's, Everybody joins up in the middle. Yeah, it's, but I don't know. It, I, I can just lose myself in this. I can I, I can totally believe in Spiridon and its spitty plants and its, you know, crazy invisible natives wearing purple hoods. I want to go there. I want to be there. I want to have an adventure on this planet. See, because I don't have this on DVD, I had to find part three online and it was in black and white. Oh, yeah, the um, original. Yeah, okay, yeah. That, I, I quite prefer uh, it in black and white, actually. So there was a weird moment where in episode three, because I'm, I'm not going to lie, it was so surreal being dropped into part three of the story. I was like, what on earth is going on? Literally, 
Katie Manning is being ferried into a Dalek base by what looks like a giant penguin. <laughs> and they've got that kind of totemic Aztec thing outside there. Yeah. What's that all about? I don't know. I don't know why, but they never explain it. An ancient jungle planet. <laughs> I, you know, I was watching this episode, again, so strange to watch part three of any Doctor Who episode in isolation mm. with no setup or payoff. Sorry about that. Because that doesn't happen in part threes. Um, but, you know, I was watching it for a bit. I was like, you know, there's a lot of action and escape in here. It's not like, you know, it's not the best Doctor Who story ever, but there's a lot of action. And, you know, the exact bit, the exact bit where I was like, ah, I see. Like, this is on a guilty pleasure list. Is when the the, the Daleks. Oh no! Is it one where it shoots across the, the set? He's opened a map. Oh yeah, he's got it on the end he of his opened... sucker. Yeah. How does he read waiting. it? I don't. He'd have to hold it up for one of the others to read. Oh, it's so funny because he turns up with the map. He turns up with the map and he's like, look at this map. And then he goes to Dalek Control and he's still holding the map. And he's like, <laughs> no, look at this then map. Then he goes out to, to find the bombs and he's still got the map. He, he keeps that map on his sucker for like the rest of the story. Oh, look, we're talking about spin-offs. I want to see the this, – this guy's an explorer. This is like your like kid's own adventure Dalek. He's mm. going out there. He's discovering alien planets. Do you know what I believe? I think he's the Dalek in uh, in uh, in Resolution or Revolution. Oh, Resolution. you reckon? You reckon this is his yeah, backstory? Yeah, that's his. That, this is where he comes from because you know he's a scout Dalek in Resolution. The map. This guy has the map. I do, I do have a, another reason why I really love this story, and that is uh, it has one of the best commentaries. I know it's a bit of a cheat, but it has one of the best DVD commentaries in like the whole of the range. It's uh, Terence Dix, Barry Letts, Katie Manning, and a couple of the actors. And rarely will you find a commentary of people that love working together so much and that have so much knowledge about the production of the story that they're making. It's really lovely to listen to. Um, I could listen to Terence Dix all day long. I, he's just one of my favourite um, contributors and his anecdotes for me never ever ever get old no matter how many times I hear them what's, what's that quote he says where Barry Letts corrects him and um, on an anecdote he's telling and he says I'm trying to let the truth get in the way of a good story yeah he says that in this I swear it's in this one where he's like oh come on Barry you can't let the truth get in the way of telling a good tale and in this one as well Katie Manning who is known for elaborating shall we say the past a little um, does that here and Barry Letts who's a man of great integrity says no no I don't think that's true you know and she's like and she tries to like go oh yes you know, you know it happened like this and he goes mm, well we'll just agree to disagree and it just goes really quiet for a second I'm like oh Barry god bless you what a lovely bloke <laughs> god he should have been like the fact checker on every single commentary track because he'd be like hmm Tom I think you're a bit wrong about that about robot so that's, an, that, that's another reason to love this. But um, obviously you didn't watch episode six, so you didn't get to see 
what is possibly the sexiest Dalek of all time, the Supreme Dalek. Oh, with his little his little torchlight eye stalk. Oh, gorgeous! Oh my word! It's one Do of you know, the. I've, it's I've, what I've seen on eBay or like Amazon. I've seen like that figure that that command command uh, Supreme Dalek, and it sells. For ridiculously expensive prices. It was one of the Daleks from the movies. That was so, so. It was one of the Daleks from the movies that uh, Terry Nation had uh, was given from the movies or bought maybe, um, which they kind of sprayed up and and brought in, and it immediately makes all the other Daleks in the series look rubbish in comparison. They look so tatty <laughs> in comparison. <laughs> Um, but he comes along you know, and he has got the worst attitude problem in the world. He like comes out of his ship with this grand Dudley Simpson music playing and then goes into the base and basically says, you've done a shit job. <laughs> Just kills a load of the Daleks that have you know, failed to capture the Doctor. Oh, I'm taking over. Oh, my God, he's brilliant. Like, it's just like, look, you look terrible and you are terrible. <laughs> yeah. so Die! And then, yeah, and then, but then within like 10 minutes, the whole place, the ice cano erupts, shut up, and, um, and all the Daleks, all these fabulous, like, Daypole model, tiny Daleks that they're trying to pretend is this huge Dalek army. I love the ambition of it. It doesn't come off, but I love it. I think, I think Russell, sorry, were you, were you about to no, say go something? Go on. I think, you know, I think Russell T. Davis must have had childhood nightmares about this story because, like, years later, he's like, no, 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 we're going to do armies and tasks, but we're going to do it properly this time. Well, interestingly, they did a CGI version on the uh, DVD. I kind of prefer the original, if I'm honest. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. I kind of prefer the little Daypole models. Yeah. They're so adorable. So, so he's like the bitchiest, sexiest Dalek of all time. So that's another reason to love this story. And I, do you know what? I, I think the main reason to love Planet of the Daleks and a lot of this era is John Pertwee, who this is a, a crazy, ridiculous story with lots of silly, stupid elements in it. And he gracefully <laughs> floats through this story with so much conviction and I find if John Pertwee is telling you to believe in these things, you believe it. I was going to say, in like the episode that I watched, episode three, um, I was really kind of like, wow, Katie Manning and John Pertwee are really giving like mm. quite convicted performances. There's no Anning here. And it's I, John Pertwee. And apparently it came like, from John Pertwee down. So John Pertwee would insist that the guest actors give like convincing performances as well. And I just think that's why a lot of that era kind of, even though it's dated, even though it can look cheap, it's quite compelling because it's very well played. Mm -hmm. I just had a thought. Can we, can somebody, if we have listeners, if we still have listeners by this point, um, can, can somebody go and take the bit where the gold supreme Dalek kills all the other Daleks. And can somebody just have that scene play and have, what's that Elton John song, uh, The Bitch is Back? Can somebody have that? 
Because <laughs> something just for them playing over the top is it's like it's like reprimanding them and just shoots them. He deserves it. Well, or could be she. It deserves yeah. it. Yeah, it, it, it had it had a gun. That those darlings, they had it coming. It's um, and my last reason because I'm gonna I tidy this one up uh, because I love Planet of the Daleks, but I don't love it as much as Time of the Rani. But it is I'm not, I won't lie, I do take Planet of the Daleks off the shelf probably about once every two months and stick it on. You do. If I'm feeling yeah, if I'm feeling a bit low, Planet of the Daleks goes in, and by the end of it. I've had enough time on Spiridon to, you know, welcome the world back again. <laughs> and have you have you ever had people question your judgment about this? What about Planet of the Daleks? Uh, yeah, I've never really admitted it before, so I guess this is a coming out episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, this is such a this is such a historic podcast. <laughs> oh my yes, god, I love Joe. Planet of the Daleks. I mean, come on! Go it has an army of ten thousand Daleks inside the nice Kano. Oh shush! You need to get over your your hatred of ice Kanos. I, I don't hate it. I love it so much. I just it's going to take me five years to work through the giggles about <laughs> this concept. I mean, it's pure Terry Nation. Is it out there with space medicine? An ice cane. Wait, where's, where's space medicine from? Oh, that's not in this one. That's in Dalek's Master Plan. He's like, what uh, we need is some space medicine. Oh, okay. Oh, it's probably what they put in that big cocktail at the end of um, New Earth. Potentially. Um, and uh, yeah, just, lastly, the, the last thing I really love about this story is how the Daleks actually aren't defeated. And it has, it does the bit from the end of Genesis. Where you know where it's like we will become the supreme powers of the universe, but it's done really well in Genesis of the Daleks, and it's done by the same director, David Maloney, and it's almost like he was a bit disappointed with this one because in this one it's the supreme Dalek who just sounds really pissed off, and he just sort of turns to the camera and goes, "We have just been delayed. We have not been defeated. The Daleks are never defeated." And it just sort of slumps off. It's it's a really it's a kind of really kind of lazy ending. But I do like the fact that you know they acknowledge this time. Oh, it's not the final end of the Daleks, and oh my god, we'll be surprised when they come back again. Actually, it's just they've just been delayed. Mm. So I like that as well. Yeah, um, Nick Briggs, if you happen to be listening, oh which you god. absolutely won't, which you never you won't, and you probably never will, and that's. Um, uh, but can you can we can we find out what happened to that gold Dalek, please, just for us? Nick Briggs did a, did a, a sequel to this, I think, for Big Finish. Have they? Yeah, I think uh, uh, it's the Conquest of Far. It's called, yeah, because it starts oh. with the conversation that the Doctor and Joe have at the end of Planet of the Daleks. That story starts with it. I believe it was written by Nick Briggs, directed by Nick Briggs, starred. Nick Briggs and had the music by Nick Briggs. It was it was a, well, a, know, a I'm glad I'm glad he too. <laughs> I'm glad it was a passion project for him. Passion. I'm glad he too Vanity project. Passion project. Oh sorry, maybe that was a step too far. Oh anyway. Come on, come on, you can't hit me with your last choice. If, well, I don't know how much time we have left. Oh, so go, I on, go on, go on, off you go. 
Uh, I won't beat around the bush. I feel like we've egged out our choice of stories plenty in this podcast. Uh, so mine is The Husbands of River Song, another compelling high comedy one. Yeah. I'm sensing a theme. Uh, I'm really showing my colours in this in this podcast. I am a big fan of season 17 and the Capaldi era. And massive over-the-top villains, because this has another one. Yeah, and with um, it's it got it has it's it's a big Christmas episode. It has two guest starring comedy actors. It has Matt Lucas, who somehow became the companion, and oh, no. Greg Davies from The Inbetweeners, and in a giant robot costume. You know what though? I'm gonna I'm gonna dampen your. I don't think either of them are very strong in this. I I have a real soft spot for Greg Davies as as King Hydroflax. Mainly, it's not the subtlest of performances, is it? Oh no! I but Joe, yeah. what, what do you want in a subtle King Hydroflex performance? <laughs> what are you looking for? Actually, Brian Blessed should have played that part as well. Oh, the, 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 that his head would be incompatible with the robot. It's too big. I mean, he has some lovely moments, though. I will say, I do love the bit where Rivers plotting to kill him, and he's just literally standing there behind her. Yeah, you is a you you play, you try to murder me. Don't change the subject. <laughs> and like I don't know, I don't know why. I don't know why. At least with King Hydroflex, I, I absolutely adore this moment where they're holding his dumb his dumb head in the TARDIS. <laughs> his dumb and, and head. Just, uh, his his head just abruptly wakes up and he goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they drop his head on the floor. Oh, but you know, that's just after that glorious moment, I know you love it, where Capaldi gets to do his walking into the TARDIS moment. Oh, it's it's like a genuinely quite brilliant comic set piece. Mm. It's Which is funny because, like, I'm going to be honest, like, all the comedy beforehand is so broad and oh, so silly. God, it's so laboured, isn't it? It, it? It's beyond slapstick. But I love it, and I know you don't, but I do. I do, I do have... Yeah, I don't... I like this episode. I just... I find the first 25 minutes a bit of a struggle, but it's worth getting through them, I think. Yeah. I, do you know what? I I think this episode, the exact moment where it shows its colours is when you have Matt Lucas's head in a giant robot suit and then wings pop out like Buzz Lightyear. Whilst he's going, no, no, I don't like this. I don't please, like no. it. Nah. Yeah. I'm scared of heights. I mean, who ever saw that character coming back as the companion? Talk about a writer that surprises. Yeah. Well, it, in some ways it baffles me, but it also does. It's well known now that um, Pat intended the story to be his original farewell to the show. What the husband's um, original? It was song? the episode he. Yeah, no, he meant this to be his fight, his final episode before he found out Chris Chibnall wasn't going to be ready to do the next series until 2018. So Stephen Moffat was like, "I'm going to do series 10 in 2017 to keep things Doctor Who on the TV screen." What an odd episode to go out on. It, it would have been, but I can kind of see why he would want to. I mean, I, I get the last sort of five minutes. Yes, that, that kind of ties his kind of whole journey in a loop, doesn't it, with River? Hmm. 
And but because it's a weird episode because if there's let's be honest, there's nothing at stake in this episode. There is nice. it's a very it's a frothy Christmas caper and a really silly one with the doctor and river just kind of having a laugh. Um, and this silly robot headless king. Um, and I because the thing about Stephen Moffat is that you can tell that why he would want to go out with something like this initially, because he is a, because before he came on to Doctor Who, he was a comedy writer. Mm. Um, he did sitcoms and farces, and this episode is very farcical and lots of. Do you think a lot of the comedy gas- here is successful, like genuinely funny? Uh, I th- uh, for me personally, I think I appreciate. I think he he writes a lot of very clever dialogue and very funny lines. Because um, there's one joke he, which really bugged me going through it, and that was um, the the doctor constantly pointing out who he is and River not getting it. And uh, I, with each turn, I was just like, <laughs> I mean, this is her entire character is built around the doctor. I've heard criticisms that you know she doesn't really exist away from the doctor. And I'm like, hello. You're like, you, come on, you know, you're always portrayed as this really smart character. I just, I don't get the joke. I don't get how it's how it's written and portrayed. I, I think the concept here and River Song is uniquely positioned for for this kind of gag. Is that the whole episode is built around um, uh, the, the, essentially the Doctor being the companion on the, the companion's adventure. That's kind of the setup. Um, and, uh, and he gets to sort of drop in and see what his wife really is like in between the, his adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, where she's a bit, where she's a bit more, she's a bit crueler. She's a bit, um, a bit more that you, you kind of question if, is she like, I don't want to go all series eight on you and go, is she, is she a, a good woman? woman? <laughs> Um, but she, she's, she, she seems a bit more in it for the money and she, um, and the, the setup of the doctor, of her not being able to recognize the doctor kind of gives him a lot of new insights into her character. And although it's played very silly, I'm not going to lie, even though I do find it funny, it is very silly and very dumb that she doesn't recognize Peter Capaldi. So that irritates me, but yeah, the payoff, that scene is Gorgeous, beautifully oh, acted. That scene where she's ranting away and then realizes it's him. The payoff is worth yeah. it, but to get there, I'm just like, oh, you, you kind of you have to make the character seem stupid in order to get to a really lovely moment. I was it. I think didn't you say that you think the episode takes a really good swerve in, in upwards when it gets on the spaceship? Yeah, that's that's where I I start enjoying it rather than tolerating it. Hmm. I think because I think at the it, 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 the episode goes through a lot of different shades. It starts really broad and very silly, and it's very slapstick, and that doesn't necessarily go away. But you get something a bit crisper and a bit kind of yeah. sharper once you get onto the spaceship. It's a little bit more stylish. It's better directed, I think, as well. I think in the first twenty minutes, uh, I feel like he's kind of lost control of the tone. And then when it hits the spaceship, there's, there's, like you said, there's a kind of like a style to it. And mm. Oh, beforehand, you're, if you've just watched Series 9, you're like, wait a minute, this is the same 
this is the same set as Face the Raven, just with tinsel on it. I hate to be this person, but if I was like the non-Doctor Who fan and I caught the first 15 minutes, I would just be like, what a load of shit and turn it off. <laughs> like, this is, this is, this is just crazy bad. Shouting but, tyrants um, and, you know, oh, I don't know. But I think you do get a lot of, I think you do get some very clever comic set pieces here. You get, you know, the Doctor being able to do his whole over the top, my God, I'm in the TARDIS. What the hell? But I think on the spaceship, when you have the really gross harmony, harmony and short, the head splitting aliens. Oh, yeah. Um, were so good they came back in Mysterio. Yeah, they. I think by the time they appeared for their second consecutive episode, it's like, are we going to get a trilogy of these villains, like three in a row? I'll tell you the, one thing um, I, I really appreciated was um, Capaldi's got two series under his belt at this point, and he is confident as hell in this. Mm. He, he plays the comedy really, really well. He... <clears throat> This is this is his probably his most charming performance. And those last ten minutes, he is the romantic doctor. No one, yeah. no one matches up. No matter how young and beautiful the other ones are, he oh man, I would be swept off my feet. Yeah, it's it's so and that's the thing. In the second half, like you do get some clever set pieces, like when they find like King Hydra when the harmony show like this we we we're, we're waiting for Hydroflax to return, and they're about to give him the head, and they're like, "Oh, yeah, oh, that, yeah, actually, that was really funny. That was that was oh, very man. very well structured. That joke. Oh, and the the look on Alex Kingston's face when she's like <laughs> zipping the back, <laughs> yeah, up, I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, uh, but then after that, you do get the the performances, which I don't think have been wildly over the top from the leads, but they they shift. Yeah, they they relaxed into something a bit more serious. Well, as soon um, as, as soon as they realize, uh, as soon as she realizes who he is, the chemistry between them. I don't think that's been bettered between her yeah. and any other Doctor. And who would have thought that of Capaldi after all those Matt Smith episodes? Yeah, do you know what I still find so funny? Which is there was an, an interview where Stephen Moffat apparently mentioned that he told Russell T Davis he was writing a Christmas episode with Peter Capaldi um, and uh, uh, Alex Kingston. And apparently Russell just kind of went, oh, that's a sex storm right there. (laughs) And, you know, how... um, It's a bit like The Girl Who Died. The tone shifts in the last 10 minutes. Hmm. But I think for most people, it feels very earned here because they yeah. you have the entire weight of the character's history mm. kind of coming back. And I remember at the time Husbands of River Song came out, a lot of people were kind of going, why are they bringing River back? Again. Like she had a farewell yeah. in the name of the Doctor. But this is, I'd but say this is really, this is justified, you know, like this is, mm. this is almost to like tie a bow, isn't it, into her story? Yeah, and I think when he was talking about wanting how he wanted this episode to end as his end to the show, um, Stephen Moffat was kind of like, "That is a good way to end it." Like, because he be, when he wrote "Silence in the Library" and "Forest of the Dead," that was when he was announced as the showrunner. Mm. So it felt like 
a good way to tie up his run would be to kind of take it back to the beginning with River and end that story. Mm-hmm. And I, I know some people, I feel like at the time, I think opinion has changed. We're just like, why is River coming back? She had her farewell with Matt Smith in The Name of the Doctor. But the character, I think, would it, it, it would be a lesser end to the character if this that ending didn't exist for her. Yeah, I agree. I, and I actually, my personal favourite River stories are <laughs> Silence of the Library and Forest of the Dead and Husband's a River Song. I think I think those yes. are the two stories where she's at her strongest. So weirdly, that entire Matt Smith era, and you know, I have deep deep issues, especially with series six, um, where, mm-hmm. it's, where it was extremely river heavy. I got very tired of River Song, and <laughs> even I would say that this is this is a beautiful end to her story. Yeah. And tell tell me tell me how you very much a change of pace, but tell me how you feel about Matt Lucas. Uh, I would never in a million years have put him forward as a companion after this story. I <laughs> absolutely adore him in Series 10. I think he's, yeah. I, I, I think he works great as a comic foil, but as part of that kind of trio as well, it's the <laughs> last thing I ever expected to work. And uh, that's one of the delights of Series 10, that that, that trio yeah. really works. <laughs> Because even I, because, you know, I'm, on the whole, a pretty strong fan of the Stephen Moffat run. Mm-hmm. I don't think unconditionally, but I am, I do like it quite a lot. Um, and I don't know, I think even when I was like, Matt Lucas is coming back for a recurring role? <laughs> After why? this? Yeah, why? I don't get it. Like, there are so many best characters. And then he turns up in series 10, you're just kind of like, huh, well, there you go. Um, but for me to quickly recap why why I enjoy this is a guilty pleasure. Um, it has, aside from the ending with River and a lot of the stuff it's doing there, I don't think it has as much on its mind as, say, The Girl Who Died. Mm-hmm. So it is purely camp. Like, Hydroflax is so silly and so dumb. Uh, the beginning is panto nuts. The You get some good, fast stuff on the spaceship. And then you cap it off with a really emotional ending. You're just like, oh, oh man. It's probably Moffat's most successful emotional ending, I would say. This this is the one yeah. moment in his era where I am deeply touched by the ending. Yeah, and you and you you mentioned like you were like, huh, you know, who would have thought Matt Lucas could have been, you know, a really good companion uh, in series ten? You can't have that same thing with this episode as well. Where you're like, how could such good emotional closure come out of such a camp? Mm. Guilty pleasure episode, which is so silly for so much of the run. But Moff has <laughs> never been a predictable writer, has he? And that's one of his strengths, is you you just don't know what he's gonna deliver. Mm-hmm. And what's what's we weird should... is, is I think I expected so little after the beginning of this episode, and I got so much from the ending. Mm, I remember you saying. Yeah. We, we next time, I think next time we should really talk about like a uh, a Russell T Davis episode because we. Well, actually, it's funny you should mention that because uh, I've got a surprise for you. Um, I'm actually going to. I I hope you don't mind, but we're gonna twist the format again for the next episode. Um, okay. I'm actually not going to tell you what that is until the next episode. Right. However, it is entirely focused on the Russell T. Davis era. 
Oh, okay. I'm as surprised as anybody listening. I have no idea what's happening. Essentially, people are going to have a very good understanding of where you fall across the entirety of the Rusty Davis era from beginning to end. And is that my only hint? That is your only hint, yes. Okay. Do I need to watch anything? Um, if you want to do some research, maybe watch a single episode from each season, potentially. But we will kind of be touching on every episode. So unless you want to watch the entirety of the Rusty Davis era um, <laughs> in a week, well, oh, good luck to you. It could be done. It could, probably could be done, actually. Um, but it's going to be a lot of fun, and um, it will give the listeners a really good chance to see where we fall with that era, both of us. Oh, and it, okay. It's an era we haven't touched at all, so that would be quite I interesting. Know. Well, it only took us four episodes to get to one version of the new series. Indeed. Anyway, I am very intrigued by what's going to happen next week. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I have some idea now. Yeah. But, um, yeah, sorry, I was I, I was inflating that for drama. Um, <laughs> but this is a... The suspense. Uh, uh, but if you if you yourselves have guilty pleasure episodes, you can now get in touch with us. We have oh. uh, a, a Twitter account uh, at, at Nymon Podcast, the Nymon be praised. A Facebook uh, account. And we have a Facebook. We have a Facebook account as well, which you can also find us at. So if you have guilty pleasure episodes, oh, please please let us know. <laughs> please let us know, and in as many characters or tweets as you can, please make the case for it. Tell us why you love the story. Um, and you might notice now with the launch of our social media accounts, we now have beautiful artwork by our dear oh, colleague, friend of mine. Yeah, Kayla, uh, Kayla Ciceron, who you can, if you want to see more of her art, you can go to her Twitter at KJ Ciceron. And she's amazing. And we hope you love the artwork because we we've had lovely feedback it. about it already. So, yeah. And, but on that note, uh, we're going to have to sign yeah. off. Yeah. After you. Oh, well, you know how we always sign off. Oh, yes, yes, I see. Okay, let's see if we can get it well timed this time. Three, two, one. The Nymon be praised! No, we just can't do it. We can't. The lag. The Nymon be praised. But we will catch you later. See you next time. Have a good week.